Amen. Well, good morning. If you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, we'll be continuing in the book of Mark today. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, when I was thinking about this passage, the triumphal entry, and kind of the atmosphere of this passage, it reminded me uh, last year for my 30th birthday, part, for my 30th birthday, my wife uh, surprised me with a surprise party. And uh, I didn't really have any idea that there was a surprise party happening that day. It was here at the church, and uh, we had some other plans, and we we're supposed to stop here just to do a couple things. And so I'm doing something in here, and she says, can you help me find the vacuum cleaner? And I was like, I, I don't know where the vacuum cleaner is. She's like, well, maybe it's up in the lounge. Can you go look? I was, okay. So I go and open the doors, and there's all these people here. The first thing crossed my mind, oh, shoot, there's an event that I forgot about at the church. <laughs> and then when they shouted surprise, I realized it was, it was for me. But I think about that and, you know, think about all the preparation that she went through uh, to make that event happen. And it was, I felt pretty special because she took care of all these little details, the colors that I liked, the desserts that I liked, the foods that I liked, even uh, the soda that I liked that you can't get anywhere else she ordered online. And then when I start, got there, then the party started. And I think about this seen here the triumphal entry how God has been preparing for centuries for his Messiah to come and now he's entering into Jerusalem and the party's about to start and God has prepared all these little details down to the smallest things for his Messiah to come in Jerusalem in the text it says that when Jesus came close to Jerusalem he called to his disciples to go into a certain unnamed town and they would find a colt that would be tied there probably referring to a donkey. And he says, he tells them, if anyone sees you taking it, tell them the Lord or the Master has need of it. Now we don't know exactly the situation. Maybe Jesus had gone to this town beforehand and he had set it up, arranged to borrow this donkey for this time period. We don't know exactly what the arrangement was. But hundreds of years before this happened, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a colt or a donkey. 
Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see also that this donkey that Jesus rode on was a donkey that no other person had ever rid upon. That indicated it was sacred. In the Mishnah, a Jewish kind of record of the oral tradition, it describes how for a king, the, only the king could sit, sit on the king's horse. So this donkey was a special donkey. We see that the people take their cloaks on the road and spread leafy branches on the ground. It's remarkably similar to what happens to Jehu when Jehu becomes king in the Old Testament. Second Kings 9, 12-13, it says, the, And he said to them, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So God arranges all these details for his Messiah to enter into Jerusalem. Then he enters into Jerusalem and the party is starting. But despite all these details about the Messiah and the kingship of Jesus, we don't know exactly how much the people knew. Probably most of them saw Jesus as a political ruler, a Messiah that would come and overthrow the Romans. This would explain the branches that were thrown as the other Gospels describe those palm branches, which was a sign of Jewish victory, Jewish nationalism. Some people maybe saw Jesus simply as a healer, a great prophet. So they supported him and cried out, Hosanna, looking forward to the Messiah who was to come. But regardless of what the crowd knew or didn't know, we know that they didn't understand fully what Jesus was all about. And we know that because John chapter 12 tells us that even the disciples themselves didn't understand what was happening here. John chapter 12 says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. But whether they knew fully what was happening, they were really excited. Excited that this political ruler, this Messiah would come, maybe overthrowing the Romans leading them in victory or healing people, they were excited about what was going to happen. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all different records of Jesus' life. And uh, we look at these different accounts, and I remember years ago I thought to myself, so we have these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So why don't they just take all of them and just kind of put them all together and kind of reconcile them, put kind of a precise chronology of what happened, and then it would be easier because we wouldn't have four. But that kind of misses the point. These aren't just simply records of what's happening to Jesus. It's not simply a history. They're trying to portray something about Jesus. Each author chooses certain details to include in their stories, certain details to exclude. And it's not that they're contradictory, it's that they're for a purpose. And that's why you'll look at in the scriptures and sometimes you'll find things that might seem like they're out of order. And that's because the, the authors are not just trying to say, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. They're trying to create an argument to show who Jesus is. So in this, for this passage, the triumphal entry, it's interesting. Uh, this is one of the few passages in scripture that is included in all of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's interesting is when you look at the Gospels and look at certain stories, if they appear in more than one Gospel, you can kind of compare the the two or three or four 
And you can see how they chose to, to uh, portray those events, which details they included, which details they didn't include. And those things kind of give us a hint as to what the author was trying to show us. And so we have a good view of that in, uh, for this passage because it inclu- it's included in all the Gospels. So I'd like to focus in on the last part of this passage and how the passage ends and kind of compare it to how the other Gospel accounts end. So, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10 to 11, and as we go through these, see if you can pick out what the difference is between the other Gospels and Mark. Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 to 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Luke chapter 19, 36 to 40. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke her disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. John chapter 12, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And then in Mark, the passage ends, and he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Do you pick out what, what the difference is there? You see what stands out in Mark. Matthew says, the whole city was stirred up. Luke says the rocks will cry out if Jesus' disciples don't praise him. John says the whole world has gone after him. And Mark says he entered into Jerusalem, went into the temple. We see Matthew, excitement. Luke, excitement. John, excitement. Mark, quiet. So what's Mark trying to communicate here? I think what he's trying to communicate here is the temporary nature of of the crowd's excitement. He acknowledges that yes, they were shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but just in a short time, that enthusiasm is going to wane. Scholar James Edwards insightfully describes it this way. He says, Mark's account is noteworthy for what does not happen. The whole scene comes to nothing. Like the seed in the parable of the sower that receives the word with joy but has no root and lasts but for a short time, The crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembled. Mark is warning us against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. So he emphasizes the short nature of their enthusiasm. And the point is that enthusiasm is not the same thing as commitment. Enthusiasm is not the same thing as commitment. When I was first starting this church, someone gave me this piece of leadership advice. I don't know who it was who it was, but they said basically the people who are most enthusiastic about supporting you are the people who will probably leave the first, the first people to leave. And I've found that to be true. You know, I've had people come and say, well, I love this church. I want to be a part of this church. I'd love to serve in this church. If you need someone to sing, I can sing. If you need somebody to do media, I know how to work an iPod. I can go, you know, play with the knobs. If you need someone to help with kids ministry, I can do that. If you need someone to scrub the toilets, that's my spiritual gift. I'd love to do that. 
And then two weeks later, you never see them or hear from them again. Enthusiasm isn't the same thing as commitment. There's millions of people who go to church each week who are enthusiastic about Christian things. Some are enthusiastic about worship. They come to worship. They love Christian worship music, and maybe they even raise their hands. Some are enthusiastic about pastor's sermon. Maybe they even fastidiously take notes. Some are maybe even enthusiastic about some idea of Jesus. They want Jesus to improve their lives, to help them at their jobs, to make their families healthy. But they're not committed to Jesus. Pastor Kyle Eidemann describes this as the difference between people who are fans and people who are are really followers of Jesus. He says, it may seem like there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were honestly to define the relationship they have with him, I'm not sure if it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It seems to me that there is a more suitable word to describe them. They're not followers of Jesus. They're fans of Jesus. He says, here's the most basic definition of a fan in the dictionary. An enthusiastic admirer. That's who the people shouting Hosanna are. They're enthusiastic admirers. They're fans. They're rooting for him, hoping that he would overthrow the Romans, hoping that the Jews would become, uh, come into power. But when Jesus doesn't act in the way that they want him to act, their enthusiasm is soon going to be quieted. I think about 10 years ago, around the time that the Sabres won the President's Trophy for the best uh, record in the league, um, tickets to the Sabres game were going really hot. I mean, it was really hard to get tickets. And I think about some people that I know, and they uh, got season tickets. And it was even hard to get season tickets because there was such a waiting list to get season tickets. And they would, you know, get tickets, and they would sell some tickets to some games, and then they would be able to go for free. Or sometimes they would even be able to make a decent amount of money just from selling their season tickets. That's when they were doing good. Then over the years, they haven't done so good. The last couple of years, they've been... Some of the worst, one of the worst teams in the league. And last year, you could go to a game for like $3, $5. People were just giving tickets away, basically, because they hadn't performed. And I think that's kind of how these people are viewing Jesus. He hasn't performed in the way they want him to. He hasn't overthrown the Romans. And in fact, if Jesus was trying to get fans, he probably did the wrong things. I mean, the first thing he does, he goes into the temple and overthrows the money changers, the religious leaders, the rulers. He goes, in, in just a few chapters, he'll say, you should pay taxes to Caesar. Render to Caesar what's to Caesar. And they think to themselves, well, I thought you were coming to overthrow the Romans. I thought we wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then ultimately, he dies the death of a criminal. Not the death that you would expect or... Not the life that you'd expect from a Messiah. He did things that were the opposite of what people were expecting. Many were hoping that the temple, the religious authorities, would increase in power. That he would do away with the Romans. That he would be a strong and mighty king who would never die. And see, the problem was not just that they were enthusiastic. Because enthusiasm is not bad. It can be a good thing. But they were enthusiastic about the wrong things. They were enthusiastic about Jesus as the improver of their lives. But they weren't committed to him as the savior of their souls. 
They were enthusiastic about him as the improver of their lives, but they weren't committed to Jesus as the Savior of their souls. And so their enthusiasm was temporary. When Jesus didn't come through for them, their shouts changed from Hosanna to crucify him. Now we think about how quickly the tide of public opinion turned and how quickly they changed from saying Hosanna, which is kind of equivalent to our saying praise the Lord, to crucify him. But we think about that. But I don't think that's too far off from what many people do today. I think many people do almost the exact same thing today. They come to Jesus and they're enthusiastic about him as the improver of their lives. I'm going to go to church and because I'm going to go to church, things are going to start working out good for me. My family's going to be healthy. I'm going to get a better job. My finances are... Because I'm getting right with God and things are going to turn out good for me. Sometimes those things happen, but sometimes they don't. And then when something difficult happens, when we lose a loved one or someone gets sick, then we're like, God, what are you doing? God, if you're a good God, why would you allow this to happen? Because if we come to him with this idea that we're enthusiastic about him improving our lives, and then he doesn't come through for the way, in the way that we think he should. And our shouts turn from... Praise the Lord, Hosanna, to crucify him. But what the crowds didn't realize, and I think what many don't realize today, is changing circumstances could never fix the problem. I mean, imagine if Jesus had come to the earth and did exactly what the Jews wanted him to do. They came and he established the temple with all of its wickedness and all of the usury and things that were happening in the temple. Imagine if he put the religious leaders in control, people who didn't care about the poor or the oppressed. People who said they were close to God, but their hearts were far from him. Imagine if he would have done that. It wouldn't have accomplished anything. And so Jesus came to the earth to bring broken people back to him. Not just to improve circumstances, but to change hearts. To change people from inside out. God knew Israel didn't just need a change in circumstances. They needed a change of heart. And so Jesus came as the Savior of the world to bring the broken back to God, to provide hope for the hopeless, to provide rest for the restless so that we might spend forever with him. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't follow Jesus as the improver of our lives. We follow him as the Savior of our souls. Nobody likes suffering and You know, God cares about even the smallest details in our life. And he promises even in the difficult things to use those for our good and for his glory. Yet when bad things happen in life, we don't cry out, crucify him. We still cry out, Hosanna, praise the Lord. Trusting and knowing that he's the one who came to rescue us, to make us new. And that if he allows something to happen in our lives, he must have a good reason, even when we don't see it. In Psalm chapter 73, Asaph is describing a time when he's questioning God. And the reason he's questioning God is because he sees people who are wicked and it seems like everything is going great for them. But then he sees people who are righteous and those people are suffering. They're going through really hard times. And so he's going through this kind of debate in his mind. God, it doesn't make any sense to actually follow you because it seems like the people who are doing right are the people who are suffering and the people who are doing wrong are the people who are doing well. And after some 
time of wrestling with that in his heart, this is what he comes to. He said, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Look, look at what he says here. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He says, even though it seems like the evildoers are winning sometimes, I trust that you have my good interest in mind. He says, where can I go but run to you? I think about growing up and uh, when I was a little kid, and sometimes my parents would tell me things that I didn't like. They'd say, clean your room, or do this, or do that, or don't do that. And I wouldn't like certain things that they said. But I never wanted to really leave home. I never decided to just pick up, all right, I'm leaving, I'm done with you guys. Because I needed them. They were my parents. Where else could I go but to them? And I think the same thing is true with God. You know, we, we might not like everything that happens. We might go through some hard times in our lives. But God really does have our best interests in mind. And where could we run but run back to him? He's the only one that can take care of us. He's the one that we need. Enthusiasm is not the same thing as commitment. And so I'll leave you with a question today. Are you enthusiastic about Jesus as the improver of your life? Or are you committed to Jesus as the Savior of your soul? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know what we need before we know what we need. We thank you that you came to the earth not just to improve some circumstances, but to transform our hearts so that we might live in perfect relationship with you. We thank you that you don't choose to leave us in our sin or in our brokenness, but you call us to leave it and to find new life in you. Lord, I pray for anybody here who maybe they've been to church before, maybe they've been to church their whole lives, but their life is more characterized by being a fan than a follower. They like religious things. They have some kind of prayer life maybe but they've never realized their need for you. They've never realized that they're broken and that they need your spirit in their lives. God, I pray that today they would turn to you. Lord, for those of us who maybe are dealing with difficult circumstances today, Lord, I pray that we would run to you. That even in the midst of difficulty, we wouldn't run away from you, but that we would run towards you knowing that you're the one who we need. You're the only one who can fix our brokenness. And you're the only one who can give us peace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.